before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, Critic listeners. How much longer should the lockdown go on, and is it now causing more problems than it is solving? To discuss the suppositions that got us into the lockdown and whether the government's five tests are valid measures to meet before relaxing it, The Critic's political editor Graham Stewart talks to the lockdown sceptic and entrepreneur Luke Johnson, who was formerly chairman of Channel 4 and is now chairman of Risk Capital Partners and of Bread Limited, and also to Alistair Hames, who runs a private asset management business based in Bristol and who has written for The Critic online about what the data tells us. Also on this week's podcast... One event that the lockdown is set to scale down is this Friday's 75th anniversary of VE Day. How much longer can Britain's commemorations of its sacrifices in two world wars endure into the future? And what did pre-20th century Britons unite nationally to celebrate? Professor Jeremy Black charts a revolving history of national commemorations. It seems like a different world, but only five or six weeks ago, the government of the United Kingdom was faced with an incredibly difficult decision, and a decision that seemed forced upon them by a rapid increase in the R rate, given the fears that the NHS would be unable to cope, and that uh, the, the level of coronavirus cases was going to increase exponentially without action beyond mild social distancing. Did really the British government have any option but to go for a full lockdown? Alistair Hames, you've been looking at the data, but do you accept that that really there was no political alternative to the course that Boris Johnson took? Well, if we're talking about the first lockdown, then I think politically it would have been extremely difficult not to do what he did. Um, It's very difficult to rewind time, and I'll leave the R number to one side because that's a whole whole other kettle of fish. But if we rewind to what things looked like around mid-March, we had not that much hospital capacity and it was running out fast. Uh, There was no sign of any of the curves turning uh, in Italy uh, in particular. And we had those uh, images on the television screens every night. Uh, And the science was still very, very hazy. All the numbers were a bit clearer about now, although still not super clear. We really had no idea about in mid-March. Uh, so given the, um, given the situation at the time, do I think he should have declared the original lockdown? I think it would have been almost impossible not to. Now, that doesn't mean that it was the right decision to renew the lockdown when it came up for its three-week renewal. And there, I think we are purely in the realm of politics, because by that stage, uh, looking at the Italian experience, it was actually clear that their curve had turned. Uh, and uh, it was looking more and more like this was a severe form of really a relatively normal seasonal um, respiratory viral disease. You know, this is not flu in that the actual virus is not a flu, but it's a lot more like it's, it's a lot more like a flu epidemic than it looked, say, in mid-March. The problem is with Boris being in hospital politically, was Dominic Rab actually going to make that call? I don't know why he renewed for three weeks, because the situation on the ground was changing really by the day and becoming clearer. Uh, So my personal view is the original lockdown, I think they had no political alternative, really, but to call it, and for the very same reasons they said they were calling it, which was to 
delay the epidemic, not to reduce the number of deaths, but to, but to delay the number of people coming into hospitals to give them time to build up NHS capacity. And in fairness, you know, I don't want to be snarky, they've done exactly that. Uh, it looks like the nightingales are almost unused, and frankly, thank God. Uh, but now that capacity is there. The other big thing that's changed um, uh, in between the first and the second lockdowns is that it really appears that the frantic race for ventilators that we were all, that was dominating the press towards the end of March, uh, treatment protocols have changed and people are, seem to be avoiding um, invasive ventilation where possible. And so the, venti the ventilators weren't in the backlog they seem. So it looks like we've got bags of capacity to deal with this. Um, and the other thing, just finally, uh, is that um, it's become clearer the number of excess deaths that lockdown's causing. I mean, every week, we're very lucky in this country that every week the ONS publishes fairly up-to-date registrations of deaths, and they even break it out for the ones where COVID is mentioned on the death certificate, not as necessarily a cause, but just people dying who happen to be positive. And what was already alarming when uh, the um, Foreign Secretary, the First Secretary of State, renewed the lockdown was that the number of non-COVID deaths is really very material. And those now are a really big story. Um, at last, the last week for which we have data, which is week 16, that goes up to 17th of April, there were 3,000 non-COVID uh, excess deaths. So this is a serious, serious, serious killer. And it's not clear that um, by leaving the lockdown in place, it's not clear we're saving a single COVID patient, but we seem to be having introduced a whole new a whole new big killer of lockdown deaths. Uh, look, Johnson, you're, you're a trenchant critic of continuing the lockdown. Uh, can you point to an international comparison of a country which you think uh, the United Kingdom should follow now, given where we are? Well, the obvious example is Sweden, and I accept that uh, demography is different and the geography of the country is different and it's smaller. But nevertheless, I think there are enough parallels that you could say, uh, with hindsight, um, we made a terrible mistake and they got it right. Uh, we have crashed our economy. We have uh, caused, I think, possibly devastating harm to the education of young people. And as Alistair says, you know, we are causing unquestionably excess deaths through lockdown now which I believe probably exceed any deaths, any lives saved through lockdown. And um, unfortunately, I, I think the frank ignorance of the cabinet and the slavish way in which they followed flawed advice is at the heart of the problem. Uh, I happen to have an undergraduate degree in physiology, which is more life science qualification than the entire cabinet put together. None of them have any technical knowledge whatsoever, including, I have to say, the health secretary. And I'm maybe a reflection of the politicians we have in this country. But uh, I think that probably means that they are uh, following emotive and unquestioning, unquestioning uh, direction from uh, experts, some of whom, frankly, have clearly got it wrong. Uh, you know, I, I think there is very little evidence indeed that Neil Ferguson and the Imperial Group uh, did anything but wildly exaggerate 
the threat of half a million deaths. I don't think Britain under any possible circumstances would have suffered half a million deaths. We will of course never know, but I think that's incredibly unlikely, but it scared everyone. And to a degree, the whole world in the West reacted, overreacted to images of chaos in Northern Italian hospitals and suddenly saw this as totally different to something like SARS, which happened in the Far East and didn't affect the West. And, uh, you know, we suffered a knee-jerk reaction of lockdown with no thought to how we come out of it or the longer-term implications for our way of life and our economy. And, you know, there's endless proper research which shows that uh, serious recessions, and we are now in a very serious recession, I mean, quite possibly the worst recession that any of us will have ever experienced. Uh, and the harm and damage to our well-being over the long term from that will be enormous. And of course, the experts will say, well, we didn't take that into account because that wasn't what we were asked. And uh, unfortunately, I think the politicians, particularly because Boris got ill and you have a very weak cabinet aside the prime minister, no one's strong enough to stand up to him of the same intellectual prowess, all in his shadow. And so uh, you have a very unstable cabinet who are, uh, I think, being poorly advised and are, uh, you know, claiming they're following the science, but in fact making flawed decision on flawed decision and the ongoing lockdown you know, it has to be seen as a sort of desperate attempt to uh, essentially cover up their previous mistakes. We now have uh, the five tests. I, and I'm going to put this question to first to, to Alistair, but I'd be keen, Luke, to get your views as well. We now have the five tests. Alistair, is it your view that these are the right questions, but we are, have the wrong data to assess the answer, or are actually the, the, these the wrong wrong tests in the first place to be asking? It's pretty clear that um, cases uh, have effectively died off. Uh, one thing I track is the number of COVID calls uh, to 111 and 999, uh, and they've collapsed by about three quarters uh, in the last five weeks. And they're, they're more or less back to what you'd think is a background level, given that this is the dominant story in the press and it's got a list of symptoms as long as your arm. It's kind of, you would expect there to be a high level of calls. Uh, the deaths uh, in UK um, hospitals in particular died, uh, sorry, peaked on the 8th of April. So, you know, we're now, we're now the 3rd of May. That's about four weeks in the rearview mirror now. And it's every, every day it declines. Uh, you know, we're, we're very, very close to the end of the curve of deaths. Um, NHS uh, capacity, I mean, it's, it's almost difficult to talk about that without sounding a little bit sarcastic because we've got one entirely empty Nightingale Hospital and one which I believe had 19 patients. So just in terms of space, we've got bags of capacity and the ventilator capacity turned out never to be an issue. The, the fifth test was the conundrum to me, which is how do you have proof that there won't be a second peak? Some respiratory diseases, these, these these seasonal annual respiratory diseases they just come they dominate things for a few weeks and then they just go and some of them come back in second or even third waves 
And I'm not entirely sure, even if you suppressed it entirely, there's no way you could tell if another wave was coming back. So I think that question is really close to unanswerable. But the, the critical test was the one that um, uh, Dominic Rabb didn't mention, which is a test at what point is the lockdown causing more deaths than it's saving? And I think it's pretty clear now that we're, we're well into the point where the lockdown has already is causing more deaths uh, than, than it's saving. Uh, like I say, 3,000 just in the last week. And it's not clear that we're actually saving as opposed to delaying any COVID deaths. But we've, we've got a huge backlog um, of future deaths that we're laying on top of the COVID curve. And it's mostly going to be things like cardiac issues, cardiac and stroke issues, people not going to the hospital because they've got tight chests, they're, you know, they're trying to ignore a bit of a, a dizzy spell or a numb arm or something like that. Uh, and cardiac admissions are down 50%. Uh, and um, cancer referrals are down by two thirds. Now, some of these cancers, if you don't get them in the, nip of, in the nick of time, you know, those things are difficult to survive anyway. And we're going to be looking at tens of thousands of um, surplus deaths if the lockdown isn't lifted very, very soon. Uh, and to my, to my mind, the absolute critical test was that sixth one, and it wasn't one of the governments. Uh, Luke, Luke Johnson, what, what, what are the tests that the government should be setting themselves in terms of lifting the lockdown this, this coming week? I fear that the one that they don't mention publicly, but is actually the one that they have inflicted on themselves, on us, is they have frightened the country incredibly effectively. Their obsessive neurotic advertising and marketing, and all of it inflamed by the media, um, means that you know we have a terrified populace, the majority of whom apparently, according to polls, still don't want to go outside and think that the lockdown's doing them good. And the complicated answers that you know, Alistair, to an extent I'm trying to give to show that the net harm being done by the lockdown is far greater than the lives saved is complex. But I think it's um, unarguable that if you take into account the um, very significant unemployment we expect, two million plus, which gets worse by the week, if you look at the very significant addition to the national debt that we are going to experience and the impact that will have on things like public spending, including what we can afford to spend on the NHS. Uh, if you take into account the damage to education, if you take into account the excess deaths in uh, diseases like heart, heart disease, strokes, cancer, etc., um, it's very clear that the um, lockdown is doing more harm than good. But the, the politicians have been too clever by half in frightening the country. So I suppose because they're obsessed about public opinion and the, and the media, um, what they really have to do is convince us that things are safe now and uh, we can come out. Uh, it's um, a bit like when Laurence Olivier paid the dentist in that um, movie where he said, is it safe as he was drilling the guy's teeth? And, um, you know, the British public need to believe that it's safe and then they will support the lifting of the lockdown. But the government are terrified of their ratings and how they're viewed, as all politicians' ultimate, all sole obsession is getting re-elected, isn't it? And Alistair, a question for you. We've 
moved on in recent days in terms of the number of tests being able to do. Testing capacity has gone up enormously and apps are being developed for, for tracking and tracing. It, is your view, the view that's being sold to us, that, that uh, this is ultimately the way out of the lockdown and we can be much more specific in the, who is locked down rather than having a, a nationwide lockdown? Or actually, is the whole tracking, uh, tracking and tracing uh, on, a, on the scale of the United Kingdom either impossible to do or in any other way just not useful? It's a complete red herring, Graham. Uh, so I think the current plan is a, is a sort of a melding of the tech-based contact tracing, like they tried in Singapore and South Korea, with manual contact tracing. What this really boils down to is that this R number, which is really just a, a tracking how quickly the disease is progressing, is, is, is dying off itself anyway. That's why the deaths are tailing off so quickly. It's because it's like a normal respiratory disease, it comes, it grows for a while, then it declines, and then it leaves. And that's already the exact path it's on. It's following a completely normal epidemic curve. So we don't need to do testing. It won't really do very much good. The mass testing would need to be about 95% of the population twice a week. But uh, in fact, with my, if you want just 90 seconds of what's going to be probably terrible radio, with my children, we tried to work out whether this contact tracing could work, okay? So do you want me to spend just 90 seconds walking you through the contact tracing, why it won't work, okay? Let's imagine that the original Neil Ferguson uh, estimate of this R number, two and a half, which is the reproduction number. Let's assume that's right, okay? And let's assume you've got a, a population, to keep things simple, of a thousand people. Let's assume 3% of them are infected, okay? So you've got 30 infected people, and these are the guys the contact tracing effort is gonna be aimed at. Now, the reason it won't work is that for this particular disease, between 50 and 90%, I've seen different estimates, have no symptoms. At the time you need to track them, they're asymptomatic, okay? So let's think of those 30 cases as marbles. You immediately take 15 of those marbles out and you put them in a little bowl for the ones you've missed. So we've got 15 cases we're now trying to track, okay? Now bear in mind that even in Singapore, the uptake of this app is only 15%. So the idea of this being broadly enough taken up to make any difference is for the birds. But let's assume you catch every single one of those remaining 15 cases, okay, and you test all of them. That's wildly optimistic, but just for the sake of working through the example, you test all 15 of them. Now the tests have fairly high false negative rates. Unless you get people on exactly the right day, you easily get to 30% false negative, okay? Let's assume you do manage to get them all on the right day and you only miss two of them, okay? We've now got 17 cases that we've missed in our bowl. The problem is, with the reproduction number, that 17 that you've missed, about five days later, which is how long it takes to reproduce, you've got 43 cases already, just from them. So there's no way you can chase your tail enough to actually get ahead of this virus, if it's this disease, if it's really what we were told it was. But anyway, for the remaining 13 cases, okay, you would have to track about 30 contacts per case, uh, if shooting the metrics that other countries are using is correct. So these poor contact tracers are trying to, catch, are trying to track down about 400 contacts of whom only about um, I think 32 are actually infected which is the 13 remaining marbles times two and a half. 
okay? Let's say you get to 90% of them. That's wildly optimistic, but let's say you get to 90% of them. Okay, you've just lost another three marbles. So you're into 46 cases that you've missed. And then, and then this is where it gets really interesting, I think, is you've got 29 cases that you've contact traced, having, test, having tested a symptomatic case, contact, uh, contact traced them, and actually found these people. You've got 29 of these cases, okay? How many of them are going to agree that there actually was a contact and agree to quarantine? This is the behavioral aspect I haven't really seen discussed. I think, they've, I think they're assuming 100%, but if every time these guys ring on your door, you're, you're missing another two weeks of work, maybe your spouse is missing two weeks of work, your children and your entire household are missing two weeks of school, maybe the first time 75%, 80% of people would agree, but not the second, not the third, not the fourth. It's, not, it's completely non-sustainable. So let's assume that even 25% of people don't agree to quarantine or just deny there was ever a contact. That's seven more marbles into your bowl of the cases you've missed. So we're up to 53 marbles having started with 30. So you can't, you can't get ahead of it if this disease was actually what we're being told it is. So if testing and tracking and tracing isn't really viable, uh, what, 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 is, what is the data the government should be relying at, Alistair? What, what data should they be regarding as, as the most relevant uh, to track? Well, so you have lead indicators and lag indicators. So in other words, lead being things that are ahead of the um, time that you're worried about and lag being behind it, as it were. We've got things like the 111 and 999 calls related to COVID we've already discussed. And those have fallen off a cliff in the last few weeks, thank God. But that should be a fantastic lead indicator. Then you've got the number of people actually arriving in hospital. That should also be a very, very good indicator. And at the moment, in the Downing Street press conferences, we see every day that there's more people leaving hospital uh, than arriving at hospital. So the hospitals are actually emptying of COVID patients. So that should be an excellent uh, indicator as well. And then, although it's a bit macabre, you do have to look at the death curve as well. And as I say, it's, it's following a completely normal, by which I mean bell-shaped, uh, curve. And we're probably over halfway down the right-hand shoulder of it. So they've got all the data they know, uh, all the data they would need, rather, to know that we are at the tail end of the epidemic, no matter what we do. Uh, look, are, are we at the tail end of the epidemic, actually, because the measures you're kicking against have worked and you know, they, they may have worked accidentally or not, not according to the theory, but the, the truth is the NHS has coped, it has spare capacity. Uh, you know, the, the most alarming numbers of the Imperial College study haven't thus far come to fruition. Uh, might it not be that, that you're having your cake and eating it and, and saying that really, you, you know, that there's, there's no crisis here but the reason the crisis isn't there is, is exactly because of the, the the measures of the lockdown well we will never have a control perfect control study so we'll never know i would argue that sweden isn't such a bad comparator and uh, i think they've preserved a great deal more i think they've ca caused roughly half as much relative damage for example to their economy as we have through not adopting a full-blown lockdown uh, so I would argue that um, full-blown lockdown has been uh, unnecessary and that we would have achieved most of what's been achieved uh, already and probably closer to herd immunity uh, than, than we are. 
Um, I, I think that, you know, among the issues that arise from all this is the fact that the government and the authorities seem to me earlier in the crisis to be focusing on things like the possibility of people sunbathing rather than care homes. And uh, for any sophisticated, you know, administration, uh, it was evident right from the beginning that it was the elderly with existing morbidities who were the truly vulnerable. And all the statistics have um, maintained that view that, you know, people under the age of 60 uh, with, with no other existing conditions are very, very unlikely to die of this disease and not that many of them get it severely. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the care homes have been quarantined and treated specially in the way they probably should have been. And uh, I think one of the many challenges that will arise as to the, how the crisis has been handled by the authorities is um, uh, their attitude towards care homes. For example, shifting certain patients with COVID into care homes, thereby infecting the other um, patients. Um, not supplying enough equipment to care homes to protect the staff and um, residents of the care homes. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is another embarrassment that the government are, are clearly desperate to cover up. Um, I, I fear that, you know, the planning more or less throughout has been um, haphazard and obviously partly because of Boris's illness, leadership lacking. Uh, you know, I worry that they're going to extend the lockdown further now, totally unnecessarily, um, compounding their errors uh, and causing yet more harm to the country. You know, no one in this conversation, for example, has mentioned the very fundamental infringement of our basic liberties. Uh, you know, many, many aspects of life have been more curtailed than ever before in modern history. And um, the sort of overall exaggerated reaction to this disease um, is, is wildly disproportionate and has been throughout. And, um, yeah, as I say, I fundamentally believe that uh, uh, Neil Ferguson's estimates were always flawed, as they were for the other um, pandemics where his advice was sought, things like foot and mouth. Uh, and his um, disaster scenarios never came close to fruition. Um, but the overreaction of the authorities in each case, you know, ultimately the cure became much more costly and awful than the disease itself. And that's what's happened here. And what, one cure that, that is incredibly costly is the economic consequences. Luke, do you just want to give a sense that, that, that let's assume that the uh, lockdown in, in large-scale form will continue throughout May. Um, do you believe at the end of this there will be a V-shaped recovery, or actually is there strategic and structural damage that, that could take years, if not decades, to repair? You can't just uh, turn off businesses by shutting them down completely and sending the staff home, and then press a button and they all restart. You destroy confidence, you put off investment, uh, you create a massive uh, loss in productivity and output, um, you build up liabilities all across the chain and the system that uh, drive companies to war. 
you know, insolvencies in themselves, and there are uh, a lot already that have happened, but the large proportion will happen, I think, as companies, as the lockdown ends, as the furloughing and the subsidies end, and companies desperately struggle to revive themselves. And, um, you know, insolvencies and bankruptcies cause um, huge amounts of uh, uh, excess damage, which, um, you know, takes a great deal to recover. So the animal spirits of the entrepreneurial class, I've never known them so bleak. And I think there is a general over-optimism, particularly amongst people like politicians who've never run or built a business, who believe that, um, you know, our economy is much more robust and less fragile and that uh, where than it really is, and that we are much better able to renew enthusiasm for investment here than we will be able to, and that uh, market shares and uh, general levels of um, employment and so forth will recover naturally. I think that this will be devastating and will have an impact lasting an extended period of time for uh, industry as a whole, for uh, the prospects for employment and investment. Um, I, I think that, you know, at a cost of roughly, I estimate, four billion pounds a day, um, the drag on the public finances is going to last years, which will mean that, you know, Boris's plans for exuberant projects like HS2 should unquestionably be abandoned. Uh, all that sort of government intervention in uh, pump priming the economy, forget it. Um, you know, we are, are going to be running enormous deficits, as it is, Britain is quite a heavily indebted country at household and corporate and government level. Uh, we're now going into hyperspace with our borrowings. And, um, you know, I think the leadership that the government's shown over this um, should give us an indication of how well equipped they are to manage what could well be a full-blown financial crisis in the next 12 months because the damage becomes apparent you know people have talked about how poor the overall figures were for the first quarter's um, economic results wait till they see the second quarter i mean that will be truly hair-raising and um all of this rather like the fear of households about coming out of lockdown will compound the general uh, a lack of enthusiasm amongst uh, uh, people to start businesses, to create jobs, to invest, take risk. Uh, and this will require a very long period of recovery. And, you know, we don't have very many of the superstar businesses that countries like America does that have done rather well out of this. You know, we're particularly badly placed in terms of our industries like aerospace, like professional services, uh, like hospitality, um, like retail. Uh, you know, we, we have an awful lot of companies in sectors that are extremely badly hit by this. So the harm is going to be considerable. And, and, and just, a, a, a final thought for, from you. Well, just my final thought would be just to put a little bit of context into some of those things that Luke's just talked about. Because when everyone's banding these numbers around, one thing that I think maybe the mainstream press has not been very good at is putting numbers in perspective. So the four billion that Luke just mentioned, I think that's the lost output per day. Yeah. 
yeah. So if you add in the roughly two and a half billion a day that the, that the furloughing scheme is actually costing and the other support, we're running it at six and a half billion pounds a day for this lockdown. To give you some context, that means it's a Brexit bill every six days. I don't know if you recall, but the Brexit bill was on a lot of front pages for an awfully long time. We're currently spending a Brexit bill every six days for something that is likely to be costing about 3,000 lives a week and arguably saving absolutely none, as well as uh, widening the, the uh, social equality gap because it's stopping kids being at school uh, and completely destroying the economy. And one very interesting um, statistic that the uh, NHS has started publishing every day is the number of people under 60 years old with no existing illness who have died of coronavirus in England. And cumulatively, it's 215. So for 215 lives that have died with, not necessarily of coronavirus, but with coronavirus, no children are at school and pretty much the entire working age population is locked at home. And that 215, you can times it by a very big number to uh, add in the suicides, unfortunately, as well as the missed cancer diagnoses, the cardiac issues. I mean, we are wasting so many lives at the same time as we waste all the money. And so my final thought would be, you know, what, 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 what should Boris do? I mean, what would Churchill do? And Graham, you'd know better than anyone. Uh, but, you know, when the data changes, you have to change your mind. And faced with the way things look now, they should just rip the plaster off, lift the lockdown and get the country back to work. Uh, Luca, it, that, that would be your uh, conclusion as well? Definitely. I think that it's unproven that the lockdown has worked. And I think we need to very rapidly get back to business. I also think, frankly, as a nation, we need to consider, do we, do we have to have a full-blown summer holiday this year if we can't actually fly anywhere? Probably we need to have children at school longer than normal. And we need to recoup that lost output uh, to try and recover some of the damage that's been caused. So I think we need to rethink what summer holiday is going to look like this year and, uh, uh, you know, be a bit diligent about it. Well, a major rethink at almost every level seems to be the conclusion of this discussion. Uh, Luke Johnson, Alistair Haynes, thank you very much both for your contributions. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. This coming Friday, Friday the 8th of May, marks the 75th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the day the Second World War ended in Europe. Didn't end in Asia-Pacific, of course, that wasn't until the 15th of August. But for many people in Britain, it was VE Day that was the occasion which really sparked a national sense of relief, joy and pride. Um, this 75th anniversary, of course, is going to be rather different to what was planned and very different to what has happened in the past. In it, for the 70th anniversary, five years ago, there were three days' worth of commemorative events. Uh, because of coronavirus, there will be very little um, uh, this time round. And, of course, the number of people who served in the armed forces in the Second World War is sadly a diminishing number. Um, joining me is Professor Jeremy Black, Senior Fellow at Policy Exchange. Uh, uh, Jeremy, th these commemorations, firstly, if I may ask, these commemorations, how much longer do you feel they can go before 
it, it feels like we're we're uh, commemorating something that none of us have any uh, particular recollection with, or even a sense of purchase on. Well, we may not have in, any recollection, but we still have a sense of purchase because one of the things about commemoration it's it's the trust between the generations, the sense that um, what you do, what you achieve, will uh, hopefully be remembered and understood, and maybe not always sympathised with, but remembered and understood by people uh, subsequently. And that kind of Burkean organic idea of the community is, I think, a very important one. And if I may, um, it's absolutely central to the so-called culture wars or history wars, which have played such a major role in public ideology in recent years and which you can definitely see uh, in the universities and in other uh, locations. Because this notion of a identity of a nation, identity of a people, identity of a state, identity of a country, you can take different views on which you wish to push to the fore, but the sense that there is an identity and that it is important as a member of the community to have that sense of identity, that's very much a view which has been more typically associated with conservatives. It's not only conservatives that hold that view, but it's been more typically associated with conservatives. While, shall we say, the new left and the sense of um, so-called invented traditions, the kind of Hobsbawm or Thompson line, the idea that, uh, that these traditions, these senses of identity are artificial constructions and that really what one should do is identify rather with being a citizen of the world or more atomistically of some sexuality or ethnicity or gender. Um, that is very much something associated with the new left. And of course there is May Day for that, which at one level has a Labour Day connotation, but also has a, a much more historic origin too. Yes, I mean, May Day has, as it were, been hijacked by the left. There's nothing inherently left-wing about what its origins were, and if anything, it's part of a sense of ruralism that uh, in many respects has been lost or looked at differently, has been transposed since the late 19th century into an urban culture and with the um, legacy of it then up for grabs. Um, nowadays in modern Britain there are um, three historic events which are commemorated uh, forcefully and, and around the whole country. One is Remembrance Sunday, um, the second is uh, commemorating the gunpowder plot on November the 5th uh, with Guy Fawkes, um, and, and the third is the periodic anniversaries we have for events in the Second World War, like the, the Battle of Britain, Dunkirk, uh, VE Day, uh, and, and so on. If we were to wind the clock back to, uh, say, the 1930s, so before we have um, the commemorations of the Second World War, um, apart from uh, Guy Fawkes uh, Night and um, uh, and Armistice Day, as, as Remembrance Sunday was previously known, what what, what else would we have celebrated uh, as as a as a symbol of our of our historic and cultural pride? Well, I think first of all there would have been much more emphasis on the Christian calendar and on dates within it. I think that was very much more significant, and people tend to forget that. Um, there was uh, the, the, the idea of a secular identity divorced from a religious setting was very uh, questionable. And, of course, that was taken particularly further in England because the Church of England was, as it were, a unique church. In other, in other words, the Church of Scotland was part of, a, uh, of Calvinism. But the Church of England very much looked back 
to both the dates of the in the 16th century when it had developed, and then beyond that, with its account of its uh, origins, as it were, um, in the early centuries of Christianity in in Britain, um, Synod of Whitby, and so on, um, it looked back to that history. So that's an important history, the religious one. And of course, you mentioned gunpowder plot. Gunpowder plot was in part a celebration, just as in the um, 17th century, the people annually celebrated the, uh, the, de- the defeat of the Spanish Armada. These were celebrations about victory over, um, uh, over international Catholicism, which was seen not just as a religious threat, but as a political threat. And into that was then fed new uh, developments or new military achievements, the successful uh, overthrow of James II by William III in 1688, and the idea that that was a Protestant wind, divine providence playing a role in land ending up with William ending up in Brixham, in Devon, um, invading successfully, just as a, a Protestant wind, a divine providence had played a role in 1588. So, um, battles were taken into the historical narrative. For the 19th century, of course, Trafalgar Day was not just a matter of navalists, it was a national celebration. And that went on into the 20th century. Now it's more generally restricted to navalists, but it used to have a much wider public purchase. And the same was true of Waterloo, June the 18th. Um, so these were seen as important episodes. And as you all know, when they uh, repainted uh, Parliament, as it were, after the new, you know, the great, the great fire that destroyed Parliament. It's then rebuilt in the mid 19th century. Daniel MacLeese um, is one of the major painters who paints it, and he paints a scene from Trafalgar, a scene from Waterloo, because the idea is this is the backdrop that the nation's legislators should understand that if necessary, liberty and freedom need to be defended, and that there can be nothing uh, more significant than that for the nation to remember. So I think it's fair to say that the idea of war, uh, the crown, uh, the the birthdays of monarchs, for example, the accession days of monarchs, um, and also uh, the church were the three pillars of national commemoration. And when you say the nation and national, can we be clear, are we really just talking about England here or um, uh, were these national in the United Kingdom sense of the term? They were national in the United Kingdom sense once there was the United Kingdom. I mean, obviously, if you're looking back to Magna Carta, the Magna Carta was, uh, was very much English. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, Nelson and Wellington uh, were in command of British uh, armies. In the case of Wellington, the British army is part of a wider coalition force, but of British armies. And as you will know, in the case of Waterloo, there were major roles played by um, Scottish and Irish units. So, no, I would very much see that as a British identity. Interestingly enough, the Navy, although it had bases in Scotland at Rosyth and Scarper Flow, the Navy tended to be more identified with England, but no such mistake was made when people were looking, about, uh, looking at the army. Mm-hmm. And so if we'd been celebrating Trafalgar Day in, let's say, the, the 1890s, what, how would we have marked it? What, was, it a, was it a public holiday? Were, there, were the schools given time off or, or um, what, what, what happened? Well, I mean, in those, that period, there were not very many gays given off by 
schools. Um, well, chaps would have a meal or a drink, depending upon um, their social ambit and their, the amount of uh, expenditure, and it would be more celebrated in maritime settings uh, than it would be in, say, Ashby de la Zouche. Um, so it partly depends upon where you were. Um, and the same thing, incidentally, if you go to the army. I mean, as far as the army is concerned, there was a very strong local sense of regiments. So those regiments that had fought in particular engagements, the anniversaries of those engagements would be very important, whereas correspondingly they would be less important for people that for areas where these their their, their chaps had not taken part. Um, and, you know, you would get, by the late 19th century, you would get newspapers extensively talking about these things. You would get, um, once you move into the age of, you know, cigarette cards, uh, once you move into the age of, of course, uh, very colourful posters, uh, advertising products which could be um, presented as being part of the national heritage, you would often get scenes from the past. And, of course, it's worth bearing in mind, if you're looking at just London in that period, they are filling London with sculptures, statues, um, which reflect on the past, whether it's uh, Boadicea on the, uh, uh, on the Thames Embankment, uh, whether it's Oliver Cromwell outside Parliament. Um, the idea that the nation's history is of relevance is important. And also in the, uh, in the schools, you know, once you've got compulsory mass-free primary and secondary education, history is one of the major topics and the works that are produced accordingly focus on the national history. And that went on, you know, right through when I was a child. When I was a child, um, R.J. Unstead, for example, or Arthur Bryant, uh, their books were widely read, um, and there was very much in them a focus on um, uh, the national past, and the national past was usually treated as a mixture of an exemplary tale and a morality tale, um, and so that those people who had been, quote, bad, shall we say, um, you know, I mean, this is mocked in uh, 1066 and all that, but it's actually, there is a sense that morality is, a pl is at play. Why does Charles I fall? Why does James II fall? Because they are hubristic and foolish. Well, now, you know, we would now add other elements, but those are both both reasonable propositions to start off with. Um, so I would say that these were societies which, uh, to a degree, were both referential to the past and reverential of the past. Um, and to a considerable extent, uh, that was lost um, in the late 20th century. I think it's fair to say that much of the continuity of Victorian uh, public culture um, helped Britain to sustain the enormous suffering and burdens of World War I and World War II. And that culture was rather destroyed or thrown away, depending upon your point of view, uh, particularly from the 1960s onwards. And I wonder why that was. I mean, I, I grew up in the in the 1970s reading the books of R.J. Unstead and, and the, the beautifully illustrated Ladybird books of the kings and queens of England and, and the, you know, the, the makers of, of, of British history, Francis Drake, Oliver Cromwell and so on. I, I mean, these were being produced and being read at a time from and after the 1960s when you know, left-wing academics 
would have given them a short shift. But, you know, I was a child. I didn't really care what, what academics thought. I mean, I wonder, where, I mean, we can point to, to the, the views of academics, but it, it seems to me that there are surely broader social constructs than that, which has led to the, to the severing of it, this sense of glory in, in, in the past. Oh, yes, I think there's absolutely no doubt at all about what you're saying. First of all, as far as education is concerned, the key figures were school teachers, and you'll notice um, this continues to be the case. The recent uh, controversy about the school teaching union attacking the Mayflower celebration, saying that this was linked to slavery, which is you know completely ridiculous, of course. Um, but you will notice that that, uh, and that's where I, I think it's fair to say that you know most people have the sense to ignore often the rather theoretical postmodernist ramblings of of left wing academics. But I think it's much harder um, when you're looking at what's being pushed very aggressively often at school level. But yes, there were wider social uh, currents. I think that um, to a certain extent, it was a culture which almost devoured its predecessors. It held up its predecessors for mockery. um, And um, that, I think, was um, one that was primarily uh, fostered uh, in metropolitan and young circles, often very affluent circles, uh, uh, but nevertheless um, had an impact more widely. Um, although it's interesting to note, and you know, there are very many readings you can offer of British politics over the last 50 years, but one of the readings you can offer is to say that people who have a sense or wish to have a sense of national identity and national continuity um, came out and voted in 79, 83 and 80 for Mrs. Thatcher, and were particularly impressed by um, the way in which uh, the role she took in the Falklands War, and you could argue it again as playing a role in the 2019 general election. Now, other factors were obviously significant in both cases, but the notion that in some way patriotism has simply been thrown away because many people have thrown it away is not, I think, accurate. It is true that many people have thrown it away, and that is unfortunate, and I think it's no accident that it's seen alongside um, a culture which is more individualistic, more hedonistic, um, much more talking about what it perceives to be its rights and entitlements rather than its responsibilities, um, and you know, a society which, in in many senses, um, is is atomized. Um, and in such a context, it's not just that people are atomistic towards each other or towards institutions in the present day, but they also, um, as it were, trash the past. And one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, the almost automatic trashing of the past. For example, you know, if you take the British Empire, there were episodes in the empire, imperial history, which were by any standard and were seen at the time as wrong. You know, the handling of the Mont Bay uprising in Jamaica in 1865, the Amritsar massacre in 1919. 
And these, of course, were widely castigated, both of those at the time. But what is striking is that these are held to encapsulate the nature of empire, when in fact the very point about them was how extraordinarily exceptional they are. But nevertheless, you will get ramblings uh, from academics, you'll get ramblings in newspapers like The Guardian, in which they portray empire, and therefore the society that was responsible for empire, in an unremittingly negative fashion. And of course, we, we actually used to have an Empire Day, which was very widely celebrated, although it would be uh, perhaps peculiar to celebrate it now, even if it was not under uh, uh, philosophical attack, since there's no empire. But I, I wonder whether the enormity of the two world wars in the 20th century have to some extent crowded out our desire to also celebrate events which our Victorian ancestors would have celebrated. I mean, would it be fair to say that, that you know, after, after two world wars, it, it, it you know, seems a, a little bit odd to still be celebrating Trafalgar Day or, or, or the defeat of the Armada. These things were, it wasn't that, that we ceased to regard them as either significant or, or, or worthy of praise, but it, they just, you know, that thread between uh, those events now had, had been uh, had been diverted by by the just so much larger events that had happened in our own century. Would it be fair to say, though, that after the enormity of the two world wars, the sort of events our Victorian ancestors celebrated, like Trafalgar uh, and the defeat of the Spanish Armada, I mean, just seemed seemed a bit redundant. Well, I think that's very interesting, but of course, what's noticeable, and you can see this with the way in which the Hilary Mantel uh, novels, or for example, more recently, uh, also Thackeray's Vanity Fair, um, have received an enormous amount of attention in television as well as people reading them. So I think that uh, there is still an interest in the earlier period, and how that is presented is important. So that's point one. Point two, yes, I agree with you, World War II very much dominates attention. It's almost swallowed up World War One, and also, unfortunately, with World War One, the highly misleading account of the "Oh, what a lovely war!" Um, and Blackadder sort of drove out the other the other aspects of it. But if you're looking at World War Two, with World War Two, as you said at the very outset, what we are doing is now moving from the memory of those who were directly involved, although that can be enhanced with photography and uh, film footage, both of which survived, we are moving to, as it were, a situation in which uh, there are few people who were directly involved, certainly as competents, uh, who have still survived. That does not mean, though, that it le loses its capacity to have a purchase in the national memory and the extent to which, uh, accurately or misleadingly, you can have your own viewpoints, um, it's been um, discussed with, uh, as a kind of lodestar during the response to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is very notable. And, and what I think that brings out is a more general thing, that people locate themselves in a continuity of time and space. Um, you know, the locality uh, of time and space is given meaning by how it is uh, part of a wider world. Um, and in that sense, I think it is very important to have 
um, a view of a national memory and a kind of, of a national continuity. And to go right back, I think it's entirely pertinent that it is part of a contested uh, history wars. I mean, if I was a left-wing thinker, I would have done exactly what has been done and, and try and trash the national heritage because that's very important. And as we've seen with examples like the Pol Pot Revolution or indeed the widespread destruction of um, history during the Cultural Revolution in China, for example, uh, left-wing ideologies really wish to, as it were, start history anew from day one. And that is a very toxic form. And one of the ways that one re resists that toxicity is by having a sense that there are longer values and that these are worthy of, of maintenance and sustaining. And, and that is why we will uh, continue to commemorate VE Day and Remembrance Sunday uh, decades after the, the last uh, um, combatant in the Second World War is, is dead, would that be fair to say? We, we will see it in a more symbolic sense. Quite rightly so. I mean, it, one of the points, you, you mentioned the empire, one of the absolute greatnesses of Britain is in its history, and particularly of the fact that Britain was a great imperial power, was that in the two moments of destiny in World War II, uh, when you can very clearly see, um, as it were, without sounding at all ridiculous, good against evil, actually Britain was on the good side. That is part of the greatness of British history, and it is one which is really sad that people try and relativise away. Well, we have to leave it there. For uh, readers of The Critic, uh, the new edition of The Critic contains a, a very interesting piece by Barry Turner on, on the week the war ended. It'll be 75 years this coming Friday. Uh, Professor Black, thank you very much for your insight. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.